Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast includes explicit language. In other words, might get a little blue in here. Hope you can handle it. Hello, I'm Joel Anderson, Slate staff writer, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of May 24th, 2021. On this week's show, we're going to talk about what's up with all this damn falling and flopping in the NBA this season, Phil Mickelson going George Foreman on us at the PGA Championship this weekend, and Tim Tebow making a quiet return to football after an almost decade-long absence. Okay, maybe it wasn't quiet, all right? But anyway, Stefan is out again this week. And he sent us a lovely picture from some idyllic valley where he's been vacationing. Josh, I don't know where it is, but it looks really nice. But in our ongoing effort to confuse our listeners' ear muscles, we've brought in a special guest who's going to stick around for each and every segment today. But first, uh, I'm in Palo Alto, and I'm the host of Slow Burn Season 3 and the upcoming Slow Burn Season 6 on the 1992 LA Riots. In D.C. is Josh Levine. He's the author of The Queen and the host of Slow Burn Season 4 on David Duke. Josh. How are you? I'm good. I'm here. I'm in a disclosed location, unlike Fatsis. Yeah, right. Did, did, did Stefan tell us where he was going and we just don't remember? <laughs> Let's pretend <laughs> like he didn't tell us, and that way okay, it seems more right. mysterious. Yeah. He didn't it, tell us. It's mysterious to us. It's inscrutable, the messages he left. I feel like so. the disclosed location gets so much less respect than the undisclosed location. Just because you know where somebody is doesn't make it less cool. That's right. That's very, I mean, look, if you're in a disclosed location and you want to send us pictures, go ahead. I don't want to do that. That Andrew (laughs) Sullivan view from where you are. Shit, we don't have to do that. Um, Anyway, in Atlanta is our very special guest, Spencer Hall. Spencer is part of the Shutdown Fullcast, the world's only college football podcast, as far as we know. And you can read him in the Moon Crew newsletter. Thanks for joining us today, Spencer. How are you doing? Yeah, my pleasure, gentlemen. I- I'm I'm thrilled uh, in this extremely disclosed location of Atlanta. Although I think anybody who knows Atlanta say if I say it's a disclosed location, that still leaves a wide variety of places to hide within the broad rubric of Atlanta. <laughs> well, I mean, we can just start at the top of Gwinnett County all the way down to like where 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 will we like go? Valdosta at this point. Yeah, yes. Somebody <laughs> who says they're from Atlanta might be from like 90 miles outside Atlanta. Oh yeah, well I mean, why not? Uh, what's that? Ta- what's that town off of I seventy five? Tifton, yeah, like Tifton, Tifton is like the, the start reading of capital, the reading capital of the world, according to Tifton, <laughs> the reading capital of the world. Mm-hmm. I just realized that we're all just three good Southern boys here right now. Yeah, don't is, tell him, don't tell anybody. Bring them right down around here. Robin is racing. That's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard you say that, Josh. <laughs> all right, the NBA playoffs are underway, and the highlights for me involve uh, our friend LeBron James and the Lakers. In the uh, play-in game, he got uh, raked across the face by Draymond Green. I actually had a little bit of a uh, futures bet with a friend of mine where I guessed that Draymond was going to get ejected from that game, and I feel like I was robbed a little bit. Didn't happen. LeBron gets hit in the eye. He makes the um, long-distance three after writhing around on the ground for a while and getting some uh, eye drops. Lakers make the playoffs. Then on Sunday against the Suns, both LeBron James and his best friend, 
Chris Paul <laughs> managed to injure each other and themselves in the uh, shoulder in the Suns' uh, Game 1 win over the Lakers. Joel, it seemed only appropriate that um, this opening weekend involved a bunch of injuries and also multiple injuries, whether uh, exaggerated or real, to one LeBron James. What did you make of you know, LeBron, his performance, and also just um, what you saw out of the playoffs this weekend? Well, I mean, I definitely think that he looks old and that he's working his way back. When a person is 36 or 37 years old and all of a sudden they start to look old, you just never know, like, hey, is it, are they having a, did they not get enough sleep this week? Or are they actually old and they're never going to be as great as they used to be? So maybe we're at that point with LeBron right now. I, I always feel Ooh. sort of ridiculous. Ooh. I always feel ridiculous doubting him, but at a certain point we're going to look up and we're like, oh shit, this guy's 36 years old. But the thing that really struck out to me from the play-in game is that, yes, he definitely got hit in the face. And more important to me, he fell really weird on his right ankle. Um, and I was just like, how did he avoid getting hurt at that? Because, you know, people focus so much on him getting hit in the face. And, you know, he was you know, all the dramatics and the theater, theatrics or whatever. You're seeing three rims, Joel. Have you ever gotten hit in the face by somebody six foot seven, two 250 pounds while going to the rim? Because, I, I, like, if you haven't, I feel like you would have a little bit more sympathy for what LeBron went through there, right, Spencer? Like, I just, like, I feel like people are like, oh, LeBron's rolling around on the ground, being an actor, you know, give him the Oscar for it. And I'm like, shit, do you want to go hard at the hoop and let uh, Draymond Green slap you across your face? Because, I mean, I'm certain you can arrange that on camera. A comparable, a comparable question for somebody in the normal world would be, have you ever run into a tree? How did that feel? <laughs> that, that's that's. I'm not lying. That's probably as good a comp as you're gonna get. Have you ever, like, just flat run into a tree and gone, man, that tree totally that that tree took me. That tree's got hands. Like that's what I, <laughs> when I every time I've been in the woods and accidentally run into a tree, which is an embarrassing number of times over the course of my lifetime, <laughs> I've thought, I don't want any part of that tree. The collisions adding up after a compressed lockdown schedule, right? Like after the bubble and then a full season, all adding up for a 36-year-old athlete. I don't really care who you are. It's going to be difficult. A lot of this is just going to be mental and getting through it. And this was um, on the heels of a bunch of conversations about whether these were, you know, whether it's Henry Abbott's piece talking about, you know, okay, how much volume is really going to lead to how much injury here? Uh, you know, who's falling, who's not, who's tired, what's what's the sort of fatigue add-ons? I think that the increased physicality of the playoffs, even on our diminished level, hello, old heads. Yeah, we have to go ahead and remark that the increased physicality of the playoffs in 2021 is not the same as it was in 1997. Hope you enjoyed your tire irons. <laughs> <laughs> and your 68-66 games, okay? Oh, they, they, they miss Derek Harper arm-barring people up and down the floor for, you know, 43 minutes a game, so. Yeah, I mean, I do too, but, you know, I also miss juice boxes, but I'm not a kid. That's why I don't drink them anymore. <laughs> so, Trey Young looked good and spry for the Hawks against the Knicks. Luka Doncic looked uh, nice and uh, vibrant uh, in, in beating the Clippers. So maybe this will be a playoffs where uh, youth reigns. There's always this talk like with, you know, watching the Suns Lakers game about like Chris Paul, like valiantly leading uh, the, the floor general of these like callow youngsters on, 
on uh, the Suns. Meanwhile, like Chris Paul can like barely dribble, is like fling, <laughs> flinging the <laughs> flinging air balls at the end of the clock, and like Mikhail Bridges is just like flying around and dunking, and Aiden is like grabbing everything <laughs> and dunking it in. It's like it's nice to be young sometimes. John Morant, John Morant's going to be fine. Oh, He's gonna be he was great. so good. He was so good on Sunday night. Being old in the NBA is a sign, for the most part, that you're probably pretty good, right? So, like, we probably over, yeah, we probably like over romanticize there. Yeah, we over, we romanticize the idea of like veteran leadership, but like to stay in the league for a very long time, you probably have to be a very good player. But what if you happen to run up against very good players that are young, you know, and don't have a lot of miles on them and can adjust to playing a, bu- a shitload of games in a short amount of time? You know who else is 36 years old? Mm-hmm. Uh, Phoenix Suns general manager James Jones, who made a career out of being LeBron James's Wait sidekick. A Wait a minute. I know that I'm supposed to be in sports. James Jones is only 36 years old. Mm-hmm. I might be making that up. Is that right, Spencer? Okay. <laughs> okay. I was like, uh, I'm going to. I'm going to, without fact checking, completely verify that fact check for you. <laughs> well, I mean, I thought James here. Jones was 36 when he was in the league. Like, I just, I don't know. I felt like. He could not move. He was he did not have like any lateral movement to his game. So I just always kind of figured that he was in his thirties while he was playing. I do think one advantage of these playoffs though is you're gonna get some and I, I say this term kindly and based on lack of experience only, some kind of giddily ignorant young squad that has no clue what they're doing, getting way farther than they have any business getting. And that's that's a delight to me. Like last night, the Hawks didn't expect to win that game. I, I say that the Hawks didn't expect to win that game because the Hawks never expect to win a game, even if, <laughs> against the, if, even if it's against the Knicks. That's probably why Trey Young was like so out of his head after the win and saying things like, it's real effing quiet in here. He's looking around <laughs> to the entire garden. Like nobody's ever won a game on the road at the garden. That's what Madison Square Garden's made for, right? Like Freddie Gibbs has a whole song. <laughs> about people lighting up the Knicks at the Garden, different people in different generations. That's the point. But they don't know what they're doing. Like, like if the Grizz get past the Jazz, right, and John Morant is in the second round suddenly, then, yeah, all bets are off. Like, this could be amazing. Um, All right, sticklers for factual accuracy. We'll note that James Jones is actually 40. He retired at 36. So I was was mostly right, I'll say. Um, But... The Hawks-Knicks series is why God invented the first round of the NBA playoffs. So I, think we, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think we understand on like a deep cellular level that this series is not going to determine who wins an NBA championship. And yet the fact that one of those teams is going to win and one will lose just brings me like a huge amount of joy. Like one, one of those teams is going to win a playoff series and the other team is going to be despondent that they lost to the team that won that series. <laughs> how How is this not the play-in game? Like, I mean, I guess, like, I looked up all of a sudden. You can NBA call it that if you like, want. I don't I know like, if wait a minute. How are these you? teams four and five? I, it doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't register, which just speaks to how weird this whole season is, right? Where, where even the se- in the West, the seventh seed is technically the favorite over the second seed, but, you know... I mean, anything could happen, but yeah, just like it's just all—it's just all in keeping with this season, sort of being weird. And in its way, I think it, like people sort of tried to denigrate the Lakers winning the bubble championship last year because it was an off year and off, you know, weird season. I feel this year is just as weird. We just—it's just sort of elongated. Like we, like people are traveling or whatever, but like I don't know what to make of this year, and I don't think that any team that is like on the cusp of a crisis or like trying to make long term decisions about his future 
I don't know that you could really read that much into this season either, right? I don't know if you could. I also don't know if you're going to get some aberrant results. You know, and I think the real the real X factor in aberrant results isn't youth and it isn't a compressed schedule. It's injury. I- injury is the thing where if you look when the NBA's had real weird results, retirement and injury have been the thing that led to weird championships. Um, well, the Rockets championships weren't weird. Those were the most those were the most normal championships in, in human history. <laughs> I mean, look, but, took on all comers, by the way. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. I will admit something embarrassing, and I hope I get credit for it from the listeners, because I don't have to tell you this. I was watching that uh, Jazz-Grizzlies game, and I was watching it for a while, and then in the fourth quarter, the announcers were like, Donovan Mitchell's out uh, you know, with an ankle injury. It's like, oh yeah, Donovan Mitchell really hasn't... <laughs> That guy, that guy is really good. And usually he's had a plays quiet for night Utah. Tonight. Yeah. yeah, he usually does play for Utah. Now that you, now that you mentioned it, it's like, oh yeah. I mean, John Moran is really good, but it probably would be useful for Utah if they had Donovan Mitchell. <laughs> so yes, injuries, aberrant results, uh, etc. Yeah, but we're not going to remember that. What we're going to do is we're going to go, man, this team made an amazing run. We're never going to, never going to contextualize. I will vow to the end of my days, I will never contextualize. <laughs> A team's single barrel win or championship. Never. I'll be like, nope, best team that year. No other circumstances explaining it. Oh, Spencer, that's so funny you mentioned that because like pretty much almost every championship is determined in some way. Like even going back to that Pistons victory over the Lakers, like what people forget is that Carl Malone was like basically down to nothing. Like he couldn't mm-hmm. move. I don't think he could lift his arm above his head. Uh, yeah, at he that didn't point, have a functional yeah. shoulder, right? Yeah. Wait, you, you consider extenuating circumstances the fact that Carmelo was old? Like, like you would like to yes. <laughs> superimpose yeah, well, young Carmelo well, no, 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 no. into that team? So just if you were the best team over the course, and we talk about like how the playoffs, the NBA playoffs are probably the best representative sample uh, in terms of determining a champion, right? Like, Because I don't think playoffs tend to do that. But the NBA is different. But the... The caveat to that is that the NBA requires you to play so many more games. So even if you were the best team for the majority of the season, let's say you were the best team over an 82-game sample, it doesn't mean anything in the playoffs because somebody could get hurt. Again, like, I mean, the Kawhi championship. We heard everybody say, oh, Kawhi's now the best player in the league and all this shit. But we know that if Kevin Durant and Klay Thompson had been playing for the Warriors, that he wouldn't have, Kawhi wouldn't have won that championship. We also know that we when know the Rockets, that. We, we know, know that. We also, we know that. Yeah, like, I, I feel, the, the I, I feel like Paul. we can say that. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Why you, why you want to denigrate what the Warriors are doing, Josh? What do you, do you want Warriors Twitter to come after you? I don't understand. I mean, I thought I, I was following the Spencer Hall school of contextualization is for losers, but yeah, I, I agree with that. I'm, I'm like ping ponging back and forth. I don't know who to who to believe. I don't know know what you guys are uh, are are telling me to do. But it's funny, like back to the Knicks and the Hawks being four and five, and like the Lakers being the the seven seed or whatever. It almost feels like caring about the regular season is cheating. It's like a. It's like you're trying to. You're like hacking the NBA, actually <laughs> winning the winning these games, and you like get in the playoffs and you have a higher seed. It's like that's not fair. Like that's weird. I feel like it plays well into the NBA fans' innate snobbery because now there are multiple tiers of NBA fandom. You can get the full subscription. You can be the league pass guy. League pass guy is my favorite because league pass guy is the hipster. He'll be like, you know, hey, you weren't watching the 2017 Orlando Magic <laughs> on vinyl. You know, like that's 
that's the guy that I love on the NBA. So I mean, I, I feel like the, who is the play, the number one player that league pass guys talk about? I feel like a couple of years ago it would have been Buddy Heald, but I'm not not sure <laughs> that, that Buddy Heald is the league pass guy for 2021. Or maybe it's De'Aaron Fox. It's always like the best player on the Kings. Yeah, I think for a while it might have been Devin Booker. For a while it might have been Zach Levine. Uh, it might, yeah, Zach yeah, Levine's yeah. so good, guys. Devin, yeah, Devin Booker's on ABC now. He doesn't. He doesn't count anymore. Yeah, I don't. I really. I have no idea who it might be now because I am not that guy. I am the bandwagoner. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to hop on in the playoffs and act like I know something. You know, like when in fact I've only watched one team all season long, and it isn't even the squad that's in my city. <laughs> Wait, what team is that then, Spencer? What are you watching? Uh, Grizzlies. I'm a Grizz fan. Oh, that's right. You are a Grizz fan. That's right. That's right. The Grizzlies are the Grizzlies are really fun, and they've got they've got a, a somebody for everyone. They've got a, someone for the Joel Anderson in your life with Desmond Bain, Bain out of uh, TCU. Go they've frogs. got uh, Dylan Brooks, who is always extremely happy when he makes a basket and is. <laughs> Excited to tell everyone about it. They've got Jonas Valanciunas, who has that like necklace tattoo that I find extremely terrifying. Um, and John Morant, of course. Yeah, and John Morant, the most exciting player by far in in the current NBA in terms of will make somebody beat him up in the parking lot one day. I do not see anybody who understands their own mortality less than John Morant against somebody going into the paint because I don't think he doesn't dunk as an abstraction. He dunks at somebody every single time he embarrasses somebody in the paint. It's not like I worry about him. It's not funny. Like I'm like somebody is absolutely going to crack your orbital bone one day if you keep doing There's this. kind of like a young Derrick Rose aspect to his game. Little, little bit, little right, little, little bit like, hey, you know, you have a fifth gear. You also have a fourth and a third. You might want to try to find it. It's weird because you you, know, you said that about Derrick Rose, but I never saw Derrick Rose, and maybe I'm, this is revisionist history now, be as crafty in the lane. Like just being able to decelerate and like weave their mm-hmm. way into the pa- pa- paint. Like, I, again, I haven't watched the Grizzlies play this year, and I think I actually insulted them. I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> in our last episode. So I'm sorry about that, Spencer. That's just uh, more disrespect. Would you yeah. <laughs> count it all? I was Grit a big time. Look. Look, talking about basketball hipsters, I was a Tony Allen fan before uh, when Tony Allen was just considered the second or third best player on his college basketball team. So Superb, superb. That is, by the way, of course, you can say that now. You're, you're still on the disrespect list. Because remember, <laughs> that's what the Grizz do. We do two things. We do that, and we lose to the Spurs in the playoffs. That, that's what the Grizzlies do. Coming up next, Phil Mickelson, old man, major champion. On this week's bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about the elite high school athletes who are increasingly opting out of the traditional path, local high school, college, and then the pros, in favor of more non-traditional options like the Overtime Elite League or the NBA G League Elite team, or even sitting out their senior years of high school altogether. To hear us discuss this, among other topics, you have to be a Slate Plus member. It's just $35 for the first year, and you can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. 
Terms apply. On Sunday at Kiowa Island's Ocean Course in South Carolina, 50-year-old Phil Mickelson shot a final round 73 to win the PGA Championship by two strokes and become the oldest winner in the history of golf's major championships. Prior to Mickelson, the oldest major champions were 48-year-old Julius Boros, who won the 1968 PGA, and old Tom Morris, that is actually what they called the guy, He was 46 when he won the British Open in 1867. Spencer, after the round was over, Phil replied to a fan on Twitter from his plane flight home. He wrote that he was sipping wine, half lit, tweeting, life is good. Mickelson also said on on Sunday that he was inspired by Tom Brady's longevity, though he did not say if, like Brady, he refuses to eat tomatoes. My question is, do you, Spencer Hall, find Phil Mickelson inspirational? That's not the word for it. He's funny. (laughs) Like, Phil's funny. I I think in terms of inspirational, what Phil is, is I guess he's inspirational in terms of uh, the no-breaks lifestyle. uh, Because this is a man who dodged insider trading charges. If you find that that inspiring, you're going to find Phil inspiring. Uh, (laughs) So, if you love the free market, Phil Mickelson's your man. That's why all those finance bros are all about him. I do find the way he plays really liberating and i always have because like the best thing that ever happened is the u.s open at wingfoot when phil could win the whole thing by just getting conservative and you can hear him on the broadcast go driver like he could have just laid up and played it safe and you hear him go driver and you hear everyone in the crowd go (laughs) because they know what's about to happen which is he got loose he ended up getting a couple of bogeys, double bogeys, and he blows a U.S. Open. So picking one up, I mean, I guess like karmically he was owed one. So I find his style of play has always been inspirational because I think people find it falsely relatable because sometimes off the tee he ends up in the hospitality tent. Sometimes he ends up in, he might end up behind the wheel of a golf cart, which happened as recently as this weekend. And yet he always manages through daring do and underrated skill. I think people still underrate the save skill of Phil Mickelson. That is the greatest save artist in the history of golf. And I think that's what people find endearing about him. His longevity, he caught one here. Like this was a dog who caught the bus because his finishes this year, I think his highest PGA Tour finish to this point was 21st at the Masters, an event where most people labeled him an afterthought. Like, he was a pop-in. You'd hear Jim Nance go, well, let's check in with Phil. Let's see how the fellas do it. And he was back of the field. That's the best he did this year, uh, just, I think, three weeks so prior. So you're not buying that the intermittent fasting diet that he went on is the uh, secret of success? I mean, the dude does look better physically oh. than he did for mu- for much of his career. No doubt. No, and he's he's absolutely taken care of himself and worked, uh, you know, two, two and a half hours in the gym every day just to get out there in prime condition and in better than prime condition for a 50-year-old man. In terms of performance, though, three weeks ago, he missed the cut at Valspar. He was, he was not looking up at anything resembling an inevitable U.S. Open win or even competition that would be brooks kepka the guy that he managed to outpace on the back nine which he did by the way with some old man you want to know what's inspirational he old manned him he slowed him down kepka's real impatient <laughs> and phil citing focus and I, if you want to go like okay where did he slow hand this 
Phil, in, in a great piece by Brendan Porath on the fried egg, um, which you can go look at or listen to uh, the shotgun start, if I can plug my boy here. But Brendan has written about golf for a long time and loves Phil and understands like the Phil ethos. He old man Kepka by slowing down because he needed to elongate his focus, in other words. This is like sometimes golfers like to talk about things in these real sort of paraphrases, long, elaborate terms. He's like, yeah, I needed to elongate my focus. But what he was doing was frustrating Kepka. Because Kepka's the guy, remember, who like hates Bryson DeChambeau for, for fidgeting and taking so long to do things. And he hates like super, like super slow golf. And on the back nine, this absolutely killed him. Joel, did you see what Kepka said? when the round was over. So the like crowd just totally swarmed onto the 18th fairway, which reminded me, you remember the Brooks brothers riot after the 2000 election where all the like Republicans in suits swarmed the like Dade County election canvassers. This to me was the khaki shorts riot. Mm -hmm. Like all these and, and Spencer in a minute, I'm going to want to get like the anthropology of the Kiowa like golf course patron. But like this, this was like the biggest kind of post pandemic, like out of control, close proximity crowd like we've seen in sports. And when it was over, Joel Kepka goes, it would have been cool if I didn't have a knee injury and got <laughs> dinged a few times in the knee in that crowd because no one really gave a shit. Yeah, it's cool for Phil, but getting dinged a few times isn't exactly my idea of fun. I was trying to protect my knee. And this is the dude who's known as like the kind of beefiest, frattiest like athlete in all of golf. Have some respect for yourself, sir. I like a little salt. There's a little salt. Every every meal is a little bit better with salt. And you know, if Kepka wants to be a little, you know, mad about it, and I mean, we really should not be. I mean, I'm not to be the COVID scold, but I mean, and, and people outside, but I mean, just sort of the crowds around people and stuff. I mean, you're not ready a, for it. Security issue. I'm just not ready for it. Yeah, I, I don't. Also, I you know, I don't know a lot about that. This part, this golf course is near Beaufort, South Carolina. Correct. It's close. Enough. I just, I imagine. That that is a population of people that probably didn't rush out to get their their Moderna or Pfizer shots. Just just just, just you know, just guessing. I don't want to you know stereotype here too much. I'm just guessing that is a demographic of folk that still have a lot of doubts about uh, Anthony Fauci and the CDC. Well, and some of us still should have doubts and you know whatever about the CDC and Dr. Fauci, but. We, I think I'd, I would come and get it from a different place. So that was sort of disconcerting to me. But can I just, in the interest of uh, admitting things, because Josh just did that in the previous segment, and we all know that I'm wildly ignorant about golf. Um, but I had no idea that it was such a big deal for a 50-year-old to win a golf tournament. Because I, I never looked at golf as a sport where, you know, there are a bunch of Adonises out there. You know what I mean? Like with the exception of like Tiger and Bryson DeChambeau, I... I I can't remember in my life ever looking at any major golf tournament and thinking, man, that guy's kicking their ass with his athleticism, man. You know what I mean? I just thought golf was a sport for old people. And and, and accordingly, like, old people would win. But I, I guess, like, I looked up and I'm one of those old people. If I was 43 years old and I won a golf tournament, would that be considered a big deal? They'd be like, man, that 43-year-old, he really persevered out there. And that, uh, that's... You'd be one of the older major like, champions yeah. ever. That's, that's how oh, Tiger... Man. How old Tiger was when he won the Masters? Yeah, it's, oh, it's notable. Like if you did it, it, it'd definitely be of note, if not the story that you had done it while being so old. That is oh, the deal. Man. And Phil doing this, I mean, that is a testament to his preparation. Dude has worked his butt off to get uh, in the shape that he is in 
for golf, but the reflexes go like the real like like thirty five plus in golf. You're firmly old man in it. Like the people who've come close are guys like Tom Watson who did it through. Um, I think when Tom Watson won the British Open, you know, or competed at the British Open, he's doing it by just laying the ball up and letting the irons and the wind do the rest and putting well. That's it. You're never, ever going to go long as, like, a 50-year-old dude. That's what makes Phil kind of freakish is that his iron play has actually been, like, competitive and long at this age. But Phil was also out driving Kepka on on a lot of these holes on Sunday, which the thing that I found to be kind of hard to believe that he was saying as like a dictum of his like old man golf career was like, I can physically do everything that I did when I was younger. And my problem is that I can't concentrate as much. I can tell you as somebody who's uh, aging at the normal human rate, I cannot do the same things physically that I did when I was younger, but I feel like I can concentrate just fine. It, it sounded a little bit like psychobabble to me, this idea that like, oh, like my my physique isn't limiting me at all. But my problem is that I just can't like think the same as I used to. Can, can we can we say this then? Because two weeks ago we talked about Albert Pujols, right, as this anomaly because, um, you know, he was great. And now he's been terrible for a decade. And it's shocking only because we're not used to old great athletes looking old and being also, terrible. 15 minutes ago, you basically were putting LeBron into the retirement home. Don't forget well, that. Well, I mean, 36 years old. When I was, <laughs> look, oh, did you all see that that meme on the on, on Twitter this past week where it had Jamie Foxx with that balded George Jefferson style afro? Mm-hmm. And it was like, this is how 28-year-olds used to look in 1980? Yeah. Well, like, that's, that's like, I mean, back in the day, like, yeah, 36. I mean, that was the end. Like, you were an old person. Robert Parrish looked like he was 64 years old. When he was in like in the eighties, and he's played then another he decade like he was after 64 that. Sixty-four years old when he was eighteen. To, in, yeah, fair in fairness, point. but yeah, fair yeah. point. Fair point. I would, she probably do that to you. I, I think with Phil, you say that that, that sounds like psychobabble. Oh, oh, Josh, we need to we need to get you listening to more golfers and their philosophies of how their bodies <laughs> and minds work. Because when you're left out to compete by yourself in the middle of a beautiful lawn laced with toxic chemicals strange things start happening to your psyche and you start telling yourself stories and you get so far down the rabbit hole and so deep with it. Go listen to Bryson. Oh dear Lord. Bryson DeChambeau is like eight miles deep in a river of bullshit. Every time he starts talking about what is happening with his body. Tiger, Tiger is the epitome of this because remember there was a long period of glutes not firing. Tiger's glutes just <laughs> failed to fire for about five to six years, whenever, and that was the first thing he went to. Golfers get. I'm so imagining hard. him like just like turning the key in the ignition. It's just yeah, like, no. Need new glutes. Wait, hold on. Can we can we talk about what's the obvious without being irresponsible here? I inevitably, as a person who's followed sports for almost my entire life, when I hear people start talking about. Their training and their dieting and all this new cutting edge stuff, and I'm just like, oh, that's uh, that's drugs. You know, if Phil was on PEDs, I think that would be the funniest story in sports (laughs) history. Phil Phil Mickelson juicing. The the number of supplements that one could take within the parameters established by the PGA, it's entirely like it's entirely probable that someone out there is doing that. How how's that for a really responsible sentence? within the parameters <laughs> of responsible language. And that is, by the way, I, I think this is one of those things where I give a Tour de France pass to golf for doping 
If anybody in golf wanted to dope, go ahead. Take whatever you want. Because do you know how hard it is to go out there and just make like make the scores you need to make to stay on the Corn Ferry Tour? Like Everybody goes, <laughs> oh, golf, man. You can go out there and make $400,000 a year and suck. Yeah, that might be true. Go try it. Go get out there and do it. It is an impossible game that mentally takes as much of a toll on somebody as any sport I have seen this side of endurance events. And that's mentally, by the way. When I say endurance events like ultra marathons, mentally it's hard to stay focused that long. So when Phil talks about focus, yeah, no, completely valid. When he talks about his body not being a limitation, I have doubts about that and I have questions. I guess chess is a young man's game too, if we're thinking about, about mental things. Did you guys notice the Phil Mickelson logo? Do you know the, the Phil Mickelson like logo on the polo and on the hat, Spencer? It is... Workday? So well, is his so logo workday? He's got okay. the workday. He's got the workday. But he also, like many athletes, you know, like Michael Jordan's got the Jumpman logo, et cetera, and so forth. Phil has his own, like, little silhouette. Like, he, like Jerry West is the NBA logo. Phil Mickelson is his own logo. And the logo is of Phil Mickelson jumping two inches off the ground when he won the Masters back in the day in 2004. And it just made me think, first of all, like, good for you uh, that you're celebrating the time you jumped two inches off the ground. Second of all, I was wondering, Spencer, what would your uh, personal silhouette be if, if we're going to get some Spencer Hall logo um, hats and polos at the, at the uh, country club pro me, shop? Me looking for my keys. <laughs> if there was some logo where I could be slightly flustered and looking for my keys, it would really reflect the personal brand. I mean, what would, what would y'all's be? Well, probably for me, leaning, uh, being laying on my side of the bed uh, with my phone out with Twitter, so I could have it, you know, have my phone charged. You know what I'm saying? So that probably would be more me. That's it. like I probably spend about eight nine hours a day like that. So that probably be my logo. That's good. I uh, was thinking that yours would be of a ten-year-old child in starting blocks, but that one, <laughs> that one works too. You could you could have different. Uh, yeah, I mean, we got all kinds of merch. So yeah, we can we can. I was thinking that mine would be hitting myself in the head on a pipe in the basement. Oh, that's a strong yeah, that's one because you you could do the little motion. You could do the little uh, <laughs> impact lines, right? The little coming out from it. Yeah. That's very on brand for me. We but, need to. We need to. But wait, wait. Before you go, move on, because Margaret didn't know. Our producer Margaret didn't know that Josh is like. I'm not going to say freakishly tall, but he's very tall, and that that's that's why he would hit his head. That's what makes this very funny, right? I mean, because nobody. Josh, tell people tell people how tall you are. You're you're Desmond Bain tall, height, right? Yeah, I'm like six five and a half. I think I'm like a shooting guard in the modern NBA. I'm not. Not tall enough to be a three and D guy because my I have like the JJ Redick like um, wingspan smaller than the smaller than height very embarrassing. <laughs> you, oh man, that is are very T Rex of you. Are, I think you, you're officially into what Terry Rogier would call tall as hell. You're Osama tall. That was yeah, right. Terry, Terry Rogier in the greatest the greatest tweet in NBA That's history right. saying Osama should have hooped instead of trying to murder people because he tall as hell. He's tall as hell. Yeah, that was a, such a great tweet. In I didn't realize those turbos here. Phil Mickelson won Phil the PGA Mickelson. Championship. <laughs> <laughs> and in our next segment, Tim Tebow. This time, not as a quarterback, not probably as a tight end either. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. 
Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The last time NFL fans actually saw Tim Tebow in a game was December 30th, 2012. He was in for a single solitary special team snap in the New York Jets, 28-9 loss to the Buffalo Bills. At the time, Tebow was the third quarterback on the Jets roster, putting him behind starter Mark Sanchez and backup Greg McElroy. Today, both Sanchez and McElroy are working as football commentators. Tebow tried that too and was actually pretty good at it. But then Tebow moved on to minor league baseball, where he was a middling prospect who topped out at AAA ball. So Tebow has now turned back to football with the help of his old college football coach, Urban Meyer. Meyer signed his old Florida Gators quarterback last week to a one-year deal worth $920,000 with the Jacksonville Jaguars. But Tebow will return to football as a tight end, a position he has never played at any level, and he will turn 34 in August. So, Spencer, you've basically been following Tebow for nearly 20 years. He's so old that he appeared in Meat Market, Bruce Feldman's book about Coach Orgeron when he was at Ole Miss. So, Spencer, are you really surprised to see him back in football? No, because Urban Meyer is involved and it's the Jags and they like to sell jerseys. So I'm not entirely surprised. Also, this number one jersey in the NFL, baby. Is it at the moment? I think I said yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it yeah. was. It was okay. right, right when well, it Well, then this was all worth it, wasn't it? Uh, that's, <laughs> that's, I'm not surprised to see him because I, and I think with Meyer, the connection there was you know so strong and the move was probably so appealing to the Jags marketing department because we tend to forget that teams actually exist within communities and locales and aren't just these kind of like equally fungible products that you can trade from one place to another, right? And I, I think that this made sense to bring him in preseason. I think everybody's fine inviting Tim Tebow to be an exhibition. Putting him on a roster is an entirely different thing. If you listen to The Right Time with Bomani Jones and Dominique Foxworth is on there, Foxworth's just beside himself going, you know how they're going to try to kill him? They're going to try to kill that man. They're going to try to erase him in training camp because you know, he, he told the story about how when he was going up against Jerry Rice saying, okay, Jerry's 40. Bring it. It's my time. And that's that's very much going to be the approach. So I'm I'm not surprised to see him brought up. I'm not surprised that, that Tebow bet on it either and decided to do it because, one, just as a note for his build, when you say, well, he's now playing tight end, how does a quarterback get to that? When Tebow was at Florida, the joke was that, you know, if he ate one too many peanut butter sandwiches, he ballooned up to the size of an offensive lineman or of a or of a tight end because they had to keep him out of the weight room. The more this guy squatted, the bigger he got, and they couldn't have a quarterback being that big. I'm not surprised that he's trying it. At the age of 33, I would be very surprised if it succeeds. Wasn't it in that meat market book that Urban Meyer told some other quarterback recruit that he was recruiting Tebow as a linebacker, right? And it it was plausible once upon a time that he would be playing one of the meatier positions on the field. The, Jevin Sneed. The, he told Jevin oh, Sneed. Rest in peace, Jevin that, Sneed. Yep. Yeah, that Jevin Sneed was going to be uh, the quarterback because Tim Tebow was being recruited as a linebacker. Devin Sneed repaid that bit of misinformation by beating Florida at home for their only loss in the 2008 season. So that's, that's a neat little loop that you can make here, historically speaking. 
Spencer, you tweeted on May 11th, don't think it's possible to have a nope. good take on Tim nope. <laughs> the science, The science says it's not possible. And yet you courageously come here and offer your takes anyway. I feel like it's a testament to your fortitude. Also, a little known fact is that um, F. Scott Fitzgerald was writing about Tebow when he said, so we beat on boats against the current, born back ceaselessly into the past. Just a little trivia for Yeah, you. F. Scott understood SEO and the need to get traffic. And he understood that there would be a Tebow emerging on the horizon to take up all that traffic. It's not possible to have a good take on Tim Tebow because wherever you take that take, somebody's going to take it to the wrong place because he's too low to a target. We never actually make a point about Tim Tebow. We make a point either as somebody who's looking to be offended on the part of the openly and publicly faithful, or we're looking for somebody who is looking to denigrate the openly and publicly faithful in a way where Tim Tebow is a target as broad as the side of a barn. You cannot miss if that's really what you want to do with your particular audience. I also don't think it's possible to critique him without dragging any of that into it. The facts are pretty stark. He's not an NFL-grade athlete anymore. Um, He wasn't a successful NFL quarterback, despite, yes, having that playoff win, that one playoff win. We can never take that away from Tim Tebow. Poor Ike Taylor. Poor <laughs> of all, of all poor the things to run. Yeah, like sports is sports is hard, man. Sports is <laughs> cruel because you can be a great athlete and yet somehow you will run into that, right? Like you will get dunked on by somebody who has no right dunking on you. And that happened in the NFL for Tim Tebow. So I don't think it's possible to have when somebody says, Well, I'm really glad that, you know, this is somebody who believes in something. Whenever that comes up with Tim Tebow, I just want to go to the broader idea of that's not a thought. That's not a thought. I don't have to respect you for having a belief because a lot of people have beliefs. The actionable belief out of that belief is often horror, terror, something bad, malicious, ignorant, or otherwise damaging. I don't have to respect you for having a belief because guess what a belief does? Nothing. I'll respect Tim Tebow a little bit more if he makes the roster. I'll respect him because he's a pretty nice guy. If you've ever met him, Tim Tebow, exquisitely nice man. Like, just a really, really sweet, nice dude. Everybody likes him. Nobody that knows him personally hates him. Everyone, right? You don't want to damn with faint praise by saying this is a likable person. I'm I'm praising with high praise by going, yeah, no, this is an immensely likable human being. And that's one of the undersung reasons and why he keeps getting chances, because he's very likable. Why not? On top of everything else, when he comes in the room, you go, I feel pretty good about myself. I'm going to go ahead and give him a shot. Joel, whose fault is this? Uh, I'm going to give you a list of possible Ooh, candidates. Okay. Urban mm. Meyer, Taysom Ooh. Hill, uh, America. <laughs> uh, it's always America, isn't it? I mean, I feel like, I mean, do you ever come, like, America's always at fault. The media, capitalism, mm. the Bible, Colin Kaepernick. Oh, man. This is tough. The Colin Kaepernick, Tim Tebow is like the surf and turf of, uh, you know, of of bad takes that it's it's going to get even uh, th- even thornier when you uh, bring that into. The yeah, mix. I mean, I guess you know the thing about Tim Tebow is that you know actually it's a, it's a very easy take. Colin Kaepernick should be in the NFL and Tim Tebow shouldn't. Just want right. to clarify. But and look, I mean, the thing is, is like I don't know when I was a kid, like NFL rosters, like they bring in like a hundred players at the beginning of camp. I don't know if they still. I think they've like trimmed it a little bit, so you can't bring in that many. Like maybe it's like eighty or something like that. Yeah, you got your 85. You got your 85. Yeah, 85 man roster. roster now. So, I mean, it used to be I don't know, I couldn't tell you a lot about 
the 98th person on the roster of any NFL team when I was growing up. And maybe it's plausible that Tim Tebow rates around that level, right? And that you're like, we could take a chance on him. We could see what we could do. And that could be Taysom Hill's fault. They'd be like, yeah, we can just have a guy out there that can't fucking throw, but, you know, he can run a little bit. <laughs> and uh, maybe he'll surprise people. We don't expect him to do shit. So when he actually does something that's like NFL level competent, it will throw the defense off. So maybe that's part of the reason for it. But, you know, I don't blame Tim Tebow. I guess my, my thing, and you guys could take a, a stab at this, why would Tebow want to? So, okay. I have a theory about maybe why Tebow wants to do this, and it's a tad irresponsible, but do you all have a sense for why Tebow would want to do this? I think he wants to feel like an athlete again. I think that's been the most important thing in his life, second to the church. So if you take that away from an athlete, there's a gap and there's a void. That's cliche, but it operationally, it explains a lot about why you might try because he's slogged it out with the Mets that didn't work and now he's just gonna go back to football and try that and if you're a 33 year old and your alternate is going and doing you know sports tv while you've got the gas while you've got some of the juice you still look the part go try it that's that's why he's doing it it's a big hole to fill in someone's life before you retire off to the land of hot takes and tv makeup yeah, and I think maybe this is what you're driving at, although I should obviously let you speak for yourself, Joel, but like when you're a professional athlete, when you're in the NFL or you're plausibly in the NFL, people care more about what you say. And this is a person who I think enjoys being famous because it's nice to be famous, but also because it allows him to have a platform for his religious views um, which are very Im- important for him. And so um, obviously the more people are like wearing Tebow jerseys and are talking about Tebow, the better it is for, you know, the Tim Tebow Foundation and Tim Tebow Inc. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think that's right. I, well, I, what I will say is that, yes, I think you, you probably said it um, in a better, more delicate way than maybe I would put it. But yeah, that uh, I agree Well, both you and Spencer that I think that it's really hard to let go of being an athlete if you've been an athlete and you've been defined as an athlete for a lot of your life. And that that's no matter how good or bad you are as an athlete, when you when your career comes to an end and you're just like, well, man, who am I without this? And will people care about me in the same way? Um, so I totally understand that. And I also think that you're right, that his parents are missionaries proselytizing, you know, um, you know, bringing their mission to you know, tens of millions of people is something that they've always wanted to do and have done. And like playing football gives you the platform to do that. And I do think it's interesting that when this first happened, when the news that Tebow might come back to the NFL was going to happen, that it happened in the same week that he uh, signed a bill with the Tennessee governor, Bill Lee, about fighting human trafficking or whatever. And like that is Tebow's like new cause fighting human trafficking and i feel like QAnon is much catchier than you're TV saying Anon. okay you're, you're we're okay to say this out loud because i've been saying this behind the scenes forever that tebow is a q guy but you just you just oh, put it out or, there no he's a tight end he's a tight end now joel he's not okay. a, q, <laughs> he's a tight end. Q, q compatible right like that's <laughs> right. that's the sanitary way to say this is to say that i'm not saying he's q and on but you're saying that the things he believed put up next to that or adjacent to that could easily be compatible with that belief system Yes. Yes. We do not. We do not know that, uh, or believe that Tim Tebow has anything to do with QAnon. We will be very clear about that. 
Spencer, at the risk of being mildly serious here, our mutual pal Alex Kirshner wrote a really good piece about Urban Meyer and his tendency to give people second chances um, that maybe don't deserve them. And on many occasions, the people that don't deserve them, it's not just because they haven't played tight end before. It's because they, you know, like in the case of Zach Smith at Ohio State, that there were, you know, credible accusations of, of domestic violence. And so how much of this signing do you feel like is evidence that, you know, of, of Urban Meyer's weaknesses and frailties as a coach or a, a human being, or is that taking things a little too far? I don't know if it's taking things too far because a coach, and I, this goes beyond Urban Meyer, I feel like generally they don't really evolve too far from the things they think work and from the things that they know work. And one of the things that works in coaching is nepotism and connections. It's one of the things that gets you jobs. It's one of the ways that you discuss, you know, new ideas and philosophies. It's one of the ways that you, um, it's one of the ways that you ensure some kind of job security because if we're all in this staff and we're all together, I'll get you to the next gig. I'll get you from 100K here to 500K here. That's the idea. For players, it's always been about if you're talented, I will give you that extra shot. There is a little bit of an element of Jimmy Johnson's, I'll treat all of you the same way differently, because for talent, there's always been a different set of rules. If somebody is exceptionally talented, they'll get that shot. For Meyer, there's an additional layer of association with you know previous experience, nepotism, and comfort. That's another thing. I think there's a new thing on top of this, which is that he's now stubborn enough and established enough to have gone from Florida, where he burnt out and... and had a disastrous collapse as a coach and a person had to go sort of rebuild, went back to Ohio state, probably thinks everything is completely cool now and is just going to double down on everything that he knows and thinks works. The evidence I have for this is he tried to hire Chris Doyle, Chris Doyle, the strength coach in Iowa who lost his job at Iowa after a number of black players made um, allegations about him creating a hostile environment for African-American athletes there. That was something he tried to do and was roundly condemned for before revoking the job offer at the JAG. Now, strength and conditioning is a little bit different in the pros, but I think that when Meyer got that and he didn't initially understand it or make it because, or revoke it because he thinks he was right, I think he was probably forced by management to do that and by his staff uh, going, you know, these guys are paid. They're employees. They have a little more stake and a little more say in what happens here than collegiate athletes. And also, maybe this wasn't a great fit. So I, I don't think you're going to see a whole lot of hugging and learning going on here, especially because I think the mention of Tim Tebow really contributing to the locker room culture. Who's going to listen in that locker room to somebody who hasn't been in the league for you know almost a decade at this point? Who's going to listen to someone who hasn't proven what a lot of those guys have proven in the locker room already, which is that they can hang, make it, and perform at an all-pro level in the NFL? That's, that's not something they're going to hear. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody, really almost pretty much from college on, but definitely at the NFL, you really don't need rah-rah guy. You know what I mean? Like a rah-rah guy has to be Ray Lewis. You know what I mean? Like it, it, can't, it can't be a guy who's on the fringes of the roster uh, somebody that has not had success in the NFL, you know, come on, guy, get another rep. Like, who, like, who the fuck are you? Like, don't get out of my face. Like, nobody wants to hear that. It's like a third grader's idea of what leadership is. Right. 
Exactly. Right? And and it's this is not elementary school. It it might be middle school because it is a vicious environment where sociopaths <laughs> thrive. That's probably my best analog for what the NFL really is, right? And I don't think that this is the sort of thing that Meyer understands at this point. And I say that by the way, like somebody goes, Well, how do you know what Urban Meyer understands? He's like me. He's never coached an NFL team before. We have the same amount of experience doing this going into this job, right? And he's never been through a season with them. It is a different animal. And I think it takes a very it takes a really flexible, unique individual to succeed at every single level, barring the kind of blind luck that a Barry Switzer gets. You know, I the smartest football coach alive is Jimmy Johnson. Jimmy Johnson is one of the few people to do it. And Jimmy Johnson was successful at every single level in terms of coaching. I mean, Jimmy Johnson changed at every single level. I do not know if that's something Urban Meyer can do. That is a known, right? That is that is me saying I do not know. I suspect if you push me for a personal opinion here, which I will offer happily, <laughs> I don't think he's going I don't think he's going to do it. I think he's most similar to Lou Holtz with the Jets. Who was another guy who did not adjust to the demands and the politics of a professional football team and ended up getting submarined. Wait, that's and that's Lou Holtz who went one in thirteen that year with the Jets. Is that right? Didn't he go one in thirteen? And tried to make them sing and tried to make them sing a fight song. Yeah. yeah. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. And it's time for After Balls. So on a weekend where we saluted senior excellence in the person of Phil Mickelson, this seemed like a good time to honor the accomplishment and life of record-setting French cyclist Robert Marchand. If you have ever felt like... Beautiful, beautiful. Did that work? Okay, I thought so. Yeah, That worked for me. If you've ever felt like you're too slow, too small, or too old, let Robert Marchand assure you that you still have plenty of good days ahead. So... Marchand was born in November 1911 in the northern French city of Amiens. Uh, He apparently grew up with a desire to become a cyclist, but was told that he was too small to make something of it. He was only five foot tall and 115 pounds, which is, in all fairness, a very small man. And so Marchand went about living his life, working as a truck driver in Venezuela in the late 1940s, and then as a lumberjack in Canada. He also spent some time working as a firefighter because he was still earning his badass bona fides, apparently. So... Josh and Spencer, you're both a couple of good old Southern boys like myself, and I don't mean the South of France here, so you know what they like to say back home, right? It's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. Uh, We don't encourage dog fighting here. They couldn't keep Marchand off that bike forever, and when he was 68, he took up cycling again, and then etched his name into the record books. In 1992, he cycled from Paris to Moscow. In 2012, he set a world record in one-hour track cycling in the over-100 age group at 24.25 kilometers. After setting that record, Marchand said, I'm now waiting for a rival. Two years later, Marchand made a second attempt at the record and beat his previous time, riding 26.927 kilometers in one hour. 
Then in January 2017, he set a world record in the 105-plus age category, which was created especially for him, by riding 22.54 kilometers, that's 14 miles, in one hour on the boards of the Velodrome National near Paris. Marchand also holds the record for someone over the age of 100, riding 100 kilometers. He was recognized as the world's oldest competitive cyclist by Guinness World Records at the age of 105. And at the time of his death, Marchand was the longest serving member of the CGT trade union with 90 years of membership. After he turned 106, Marchand's doctors advised the cyclist to stop training for world records, but he still kept going, training and riding his bike at least 20 minutes a day. He celebrated his 107th birthday with a 20-kilometer ride. When he turned 108, he transitioned into indoor riding due to hearing loss, but he was still riding daily until a week before his death. And that death came Saturday at a care facility outside Paris. He was 109. And maybe the quickest and easiest way to wrap this up is to say, never stop riding, or some shit like that. So Robert Marchand, that's going to be who our afterball is. And Josh, who is your Robert Marchand? My Robert Marchand this week is some found art, courtesy of the Athletics' Peter Baugh. Last week, Baugh published a screenshot of the 2021 transaction log for a baseball player named Jacob Nottingham. I will now read you that transaction log in full. April 1st, 2021, Milwaukee Brewers placed catcher Jacob Nottingham on the 10-day disabled list. April 22nd, 2021, Milwaukee Brewers designate catcher Jacob Nottingham for assignment. Also April 22nd, Milwaukee Brewers activated catcher Jacob Nottingham from the 10-day injured list. April 28th, Seattle Mariners claim Jacob Nottingham off waivers from Brewers. April 30th, Seattle Mariners activate Jacob Nottingham. May 1st, Seattle Mariners designate Jacob Nottingham for assignment. May 2nd, Seattle Mariners trade Jacob Nottingham back to the Brewers for cash. May 13th, Milwaukee Brewers designate Jacob Nottingham for assignment. And finally, May 20th, Seattle Mariners claim Jacob Nottingham off waivers from Milwaukee Brewers. That is nine total transactions for the King Jacob Nottingham, who has played in a total of eight games this year for Milwaukee and Seattle. Three of those games came this weekend when he went one for 10 with six strikeouts. But as our friend Robert Marchand would say, it's about the journey, not the destination. Before the season, MLB.com's Adam McAlvey wrote a piece about Nottingham's comeback from a thumb injury. The story mentioned that Nottingham had lost a grandmother and an aunt to ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, That story featured an image of a tattoo on Nottingham's left arm, which shows his aunt and his grandmother walking together with an enormous Lou Gehrig looking down on them from above. It is truly one of the most remarkable tattoos I've ever seen in my life. Shout out to the artist, Wes Hogan, awesome Hogan on Instagram. While we await the next Jacob Nottingham transaction, and personally, I'm hoping for um, the Mariners trading him to the Brewers and then the Brewers trading him back to the Mariners just a couple more times before the year is over. Um, I wanted to highlight a couple of other top-notch transaction laws, and I found these in the replies to Peter Baugh's tweet, so thank you, Twitter, for doing all the work for me this week. Um, This one is David Hales, starting in January 2018, signed as a free agent with the Yankees, then selected off waivers by the Twins from the Yankees, granted free agency, signed as a free agent with the Yankees, granted free agency, signed as a free agent with the Yankees, granted free agency, signed as a free agent with the Yankees, granted free agency, signed as a free agent with the Yankees, traded by the New York Yankees to the Philadelphia Phillies for Addison Russ. Had to end with a dude named Addison Russ. 
And finally, November 4th, 2019, third baseman Dante Bichette elected free agency. This is the like younger Dante Bichette, by the way, not the older Dante Bichette. December 26, 2019, Washington Nationals signed free agent third baseman Dante Bichette to a minor league contract. March 2nd, 2020, Dante Bichette assigned to Brazil. March 2nd, 2020, Dante Bichette assigned to Fresno Grizzlies. May 31st, 2020, Washington Nationals release Dante Bichette. Spencer, that's kind of the arc of human existence. First, you get free agency, then the Nationals sign you, then you go to Brazil, then you go to Fresno, then you're released. Um, if I do as well, I will consider myself a success. <laughs> I mean, I think of that sweet release, actually. Just like the sweet release. You, you didn't have to stay in Fresno. How, I mean, that's not... It's, it's, it's the bad. Fresno to Brazil trajectory. I really <laughs> like trying to find people who've been in two places in their life where you would not expect those two places. For instance, um, in college football, the Andrew Hatch trajectory, where somebody is like an LSU player who is a transfer from Harvard. That <laughs> LSU had another of those dudes this year. or or my favorite every aussie punter who goes to say central arkansas and then you know from sydney to uh jones boogie to jonesboro arkansas (laughs) i really like that because then you hear them saying things like yeah the roads are terrible here and everyone has guns it's way less it's not as nice as australia (laughs) and then you look up where they're from in australia and you go really (laughs) wow Well, I, I'm still sort of reeling. Um, we, I know we're talking about the journey. I didn't know that there were two Dante Bichettes. So did y'all know there were two? Did, did you all? I mean, I know that I'm, you know, if it's not college football or basketball or track or maybe boxing, I probably don't know. But Joel, huh. I, I think you made a mistake there. It's We know that there are at least two Dante Bichettes. There could be, no, there could be even point. more. Yeah, there could right. be multiple, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, that's how, just how limited I am. Put your head on a swivel. Yeah, my, my, my imagination is so limited, so I'll, I'll have to keep that in mind. Well, if, there, if you're a Dante Bichette who's not one of the Dante Bichettes that we refer to today, please write in. We'd like to meet you. So uh, anyway, well, that's, that's our show for today. Uh, our producer this week was the great Margaret Kelly. Uh, to listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to Slate dot com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com and don't forget to subscribe to the show and to rate us and review us on apple Podcasts. so for josh levine for our good friend special guest from atlanta spencer hall i'm joel anderson remember zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening step into the world of power loyalty and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.